In the season premiere, I made passing mention to a battle that occurred two and a half millennia ago. I said that 10,000 Athenians stood against 25,000 Persians at Marathon in 490 BC. The Battle of Marathon, which is arguably one of the most important battles in human history, is legendary in the military annals, and the tactics employed by Athenian general Miltiades were so successful that they are still studied in modern schools of warfare. Yet, even outside of war rooms and military academies, this battle is so famous that... Well, let me put it like this. Have you ever heard about running a marathon? Good morrow, everybody. My name is Ben Laboot, and welcome to Stories of Symmetry, a fortnightly podcast dedicated to revealing beauty and purpose through another look at faith, the sacred, and the stories that unite us all. The record holder of the 100-meter sprint gets the title Fastest on the Planet. The winner of the CrossFit Games is dubbed Fittest on Earth. And if you win the decathlon, you have Ron Swanson's vote for office. But none of these sporting events can give to its winner the fame and legendary status of the very first marathoner. The story goes that Pheidippides was a messenger of Athens. He was a long-distance runner and courier known as a hemerodramos. And when the Persian navy was approaching Greece, Pheidippides ran from Athens across 150 miles of rugged Greek terrain to seek help from Sparta. Although they were willing, the Spartans couldn't be ready in time. But because the Athenians needed to be apprised of the situation, Pheidippides turned around almost immediately and retraced his 150-mile route back to Athens to relay the Spartans' message. The journey was about 300 miles, or 480 kilometers, and he ran it in fewer than 48 hours. For you runners out there, that's about a 9.30 pace. And if you're a marathon runner, or you know someone who is, then you might know that a marathon is not 300 miles, not 150 miles, but 26.2 miles, or 42.2 kilometers. And that's because the Persian navy arrived at the plains of Marathon. And after General Miltiades and his countrymen defeated the invading army in a decisive battle that saw remarkably few Greek casualties, legend tells tale of a messenger, supposedly Pheidippides, who ran from Marathon to Athens, a distance of about 25 miles, to relay the good news of victory. And when that messenger arrived at Athens, he exclaimed, We have victory. The history of the modern marathon, its inception, the colorful bevies of participants and spectators who have made each one unique and memorable, and why a marathon is 26.2 instead of 25 miles, are all fabulous stories that I recommend. Today, however, let's talk about a messenger who predates Pheidippides and the first marathon. He hails not from Greece, but from Israel. In the previous episode, 
We discussed how just over 100 years before Meltiades, Phidippides, and the Battle of Marathon, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, in 587 BC, wrought the destruction of Jerusalem and initiated the subsequent Babylonian exile, in which the surviving Israelites were taken to Babylon as captives. In the aftermath of that vicissitude, a poem was written. The 52nd chapter of Isaiah paints the picture of a remnant of Jewish survivors in Jerusalem. In the vignette, there are watchmen on what's left of the city wall. But lo, from the bulwark can be seen a messenger running toward the city. And the poem begins. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings good news of good things, who announces salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. For the Jews, this was a prophecy of hope. Because what possible good news could these refugees expect as they stand amid the ruins of their capital city in God's temple, Beit HaMikdash? After all the horrors they had endured, but if somehow good news were possible, then how beautiful upon the mountains would be the feet of the one who brings it. When it comes to this good news, there's more than meets the eye. Because when the phrase is used in the Bible, it doesn't refer to simply any welcome tidings, but specifically good news about God. It is good news that God still reigns. But can that be? Considering the passage from Isaiah, what are the odds that, even after the Gentiles destroyed Jerusalem, its strong walls and the Lord's house therein, is it possible that God is still on the throne? Because if God were still at the helm, then how could any of that ever happen? If God were in control, and strong and mighty, then things would be different. Dare we say it? Could it be that God isn't even real? Or at least somehow it's all different than we've been taught. Perhaps God is powerless or uncaring or non-existent. And at that point, what's the difference anyway? In the middle of such questioning, there is a vision, a prophecy, that from the city walls the watchmen see a runner coming over the mountains, and when that messenger fast approaching arrives at the city, he publishes good news and announces to Zion, Your God reigns. And the denizens of those ruins ask, as we ask ourselves, Is that true? Can it be? That just when all seems lost and hope is fleeting, nevertheless, is our God still in control? And if God reigns and is in control, then it also means that God has been in control all along. And if that's the case, then God could have made things happen differently. Indeed, God could have prevented the Babylonian exile. But, for some reason, didn't. On the one hand, ire is understandable. Anger at God's condoning or maybe orchestrating all the bad things that have happened. On the other hand, 
there is hope and gladness. Recognition of the good news that God is indeed in control and must have a reason for the suffering. Yes, if God is sovereign, then these bad things are not random, purposeless nightmares. Rather, there is some meaning to it, and somehow, it fits into the divine plans. This, yes, this, is good news. That although it seems like the world is falling apart, whether the whole world or just yours, and despite the appearance of the hopeless chaos of a God-abandoned world, the Lord has not abdicated. The Lord is seated on the throne. Indeed, God is in control. Two weeks ago, we learned that Jeremiah prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem and the Babylonian exile, and that what could have been easily mistaken for wanton cruelty was actually just punishment to the Israelites, for they had failed to observe the septennial Sabbath called Shemitah. The Israelites abused the land and scorned God's law, and, therefore, expiation had to be wrought. But Jeremiah not only predicted what would happen, he gave a timeline. God spoke through Jeremiah, saying, Israel shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years. Then, after seventy years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation. As surely as the Lord did speak, so too did those words come true. After seventy years, King Cyrus the Great of Persia rose up and conquered the fugacious Babylonian Empire. Eftsoons he issued an edict that allowed the captive Jews to return to Israel. Thus, the word of the Lord, by the mouth of Jeremiah, was fulfilled. But after their return, things just weren't the same. The people returned, but it felt like God never did. The books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Haggai record the building of the second Beit HaMikdash, But after its completion, the presence of God was never there the way it had been previously. God was not witness performing miracles over the altar of the second temple. And the old people who remembered the first Beit HaMikdash that King Solomon had built lamented that the new Beit HaMikdash just wasn't the same. As for the nation of Israel, it too never returned to its heyday and former glory. No new kings sat on Israel's throne. One empire after another came to subjugate, oppress, and rule the people. Where was the new king, the Masiach, to restore Israel? When would the sovereign God send his people a new Moses, a new David, the Messiah? One day, in the synagogue of a small, inconsequential town in the highlands of Israel, Jesus stood up and read these words from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to announce liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
Then Jesus announced to the synagogue, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This story comes from the Gospel of Luke. Now, gospel itself is an interesting word if you've never stopped to think about it. Gospel is a translation of the Greek word euangelion, and it quite literally means good news. And in this sense, gospel is the good news mentioned throughout the Bible, the good news that makes the feet of the messenger upon the mountains look oh so beautiful, good news that God is sovereign and in control. When Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote their gospel accounts, when Jesus walked the earth, it certainly didn't appear that God still reigned. The Romans occupied Israel and were harsh rulers. They exacted steep taxes and stole from the people more than they could bear. They placed a Roman eagle atop the second Beit Hamikdash. They crucified Jews en masse when there was dissension. Herod, who bore the title King of the Jews, was little more than a puppet and servant of Rome. Finally, even the Jewish leadership itself had become a feat and, in attempting to balance their faith against Roman law, they more and more diminished the former until it eventually lost all vitality. In the middle of that crazy world, Jesus was born. When he was but an infant, his parents were forced to flee Israel and become refugees in Egypt, because the man who fancied himself king of the Jews was killing Jews out of fear that one of them might be the Messiah and supplant his illegitimate claim to the throne. When that king had died, Jesus returned to Israel with his family. He lived as a poor laborer and witnessed his people's daily suffering at the hands of their rulers. And yet, in the middle of all that, Jesus announced that he had good news. After about three years of teaching and proclaiming God's kingdom, Jesus was executed by Romans at the behest of Jewish authorities. His own kinfolk sought to kill him and succeeded. His followers, like the Jews living in the aftermath of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, were forlorn, disillusioned, and scattered. Diaspora, as it were. Where is God now? What of the promises made by Jesus who claimed to be the Messiah? Where is God's kingdom about which he preached so identically? In the wake of Christ's death, his followers sat amidst the ruin and contemplated all these things. But in the words of the prophet, how beautiful upon the mountain are the feet of her who brings good news. Because on the morning of the third day, Mary the Magdalene ran to the disciples and announced the good news that the tomb was empty. Jesus had died, but he didn't stay dead. And while the disciples were uncertain, God was running the show. The psalmist once said, The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice and the coastlands be glad. And when the disciples thought that all was lost, Mary came, as a messenger, to proclaim those tidings. He is risen, he is risen, the God of Zion reigns. Throughout the ensuing forty days, 
Jesus appeared to his followers and tried to clarify everything that had been confusing to them. And Jesus also prepared them for their next commission, bringing the good news to every person of every land. So they dispersed throughout the known world, taking the gospel with them wherever they went, announcing that although the world looks like a mess, God is in charge. And they preach with certainty and conviction, because of Jesus the Messiah, for he was sent by God, and even when he was killed, it was all part of the plan. God was in control the whole time. Jesus said that he would die and then resurrect on the third day, and that's exactly what happened. I wonder what the atmosphere was like in Athens when the Persian army was attempting to land a mere 25 miles away. And though the army has been dispatched to defend the country, they're outnumbered, and no reinforcements are on their way. In that tense atmosphere, a watchman sees a distant runner, is it Pheidippides, and announces the messenger's approach. The city gathers to hear what news he brings. Did Miltiades succeed? Do we have victory? Or is all lost, and we're really just dead men walking? Oh, to be in Athens, how sweet the sound of the runner's voice saying, We have victory. I wonder what it was like to be a slave in Babylon, and hear the words, Your God reigns. I wonder what it must have felt like to huddle inside a locked room and wonder if, at any moment, soldiers will come to arrest you, the same soldiers who, just days ago, killed your friend and teacher, the man who you thought was the Messiah, the anointed one of God, even God himself. Now he's dead, and everything you thought you knew seems wrong, and you're adulpated and on the run. I wonder what it's like when at that moment, Mary the messenger comes running up and says, We have victory. Our God reigns. And not only does Jesus live, but he did it. He said that he would make all things new, and he is. He reunited God and mankind. Because of Jesus, we are no longer dead men walking. We have life. This, this isn't just a good news. This is more than euangelion. This is the best news of all. This is the type of news that causes uncontainable rejoicing. The type that made David say, I will become even more undignified than this. The gospel of Jesus is the type of good news that even if people were to be silent about it, the rocks would cry out in joy. The type of good news that compelled Paul to preach it without regard for his own self-interest, like when he said, Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel, for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. As we listen to Isaiah's poem, 
about a runner with good news. Ask yourself, do you believe that God reigns? Do you believe that God has control of the situation, even if you can't understand how? And if you do, then will you be the runner who spreads that good news? How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of the messenger who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings good news of good things, who announces salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, the watchmen of the city are raising their voices. They are shouting together for joy, for with their own eyes they can see the Lord returning to Zion. Break out into joyous singing, you wastelands of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people, and he has redeemed the city of Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of every nation, and every corner of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Leave, depart, get out of Babylonia, touch no unclean thing, get out from her midst, and purify yourselves, you who carry the equipment of God's temple. But you need not leave in haste, you do not have to flee, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel also will be your guard behind you. Thank you for joining Stories of Symmetry. My name is Ben Laboot, and I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, then please share it with those you know, and together, we can promulgate good news. Also, don't forget that you can visit storiesofsymmetry.com to catch up on episodes, blogs, and more. Or, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, at Stories of Symmetry. The next episode, titled The Worth of Wisdom, will be out in two weeks. Until then, go with God, go in peace.